Okay, friends, Greg Kokel here, Stand to Reason, and uh, it's the show that turns your mind on, I hope. Uh, glad to be part of this. Glad you're with us, with me. And, uh, you know, I don't give the number out too often, but I ought to do so more often. I'm looking around for, oh, there it is, one eight five five two four three nine nine seven five. That's the number to call live during the show when I'm here live, which is Tuesdays from 6, no, from 4 until 6. Tuesdays 4 until 6, 855-243-9975, outside the U.S., 562-424-8229. So if you're outside of us, 562 is the area code where Stand to Reason's offices are at in Roughly the Long Beach area, 424-8229. That's the number. And I finished uh, the last show uh, answering some questions that I had, you know, uh, in my folder. People hadn't been able to get answered before. And I was talking about the science and creation and evolution There's a couple more here that are related to that. I'd like to just keep going on that. And uh, the (laughs) I forgot to mention a kind of postscript question to the question I spent some time on, why believe in creationist, on the creationist worldview now that we have the theory of evolution. And what I said was, is that it doesn't look like things evolved. There isn't a mechanism that's adequate uh, to promote the Darwinian model the way people suggest. They offer the mechanism, but it can't do what they say it, it does. It just, quantifiably, you look at it, you see that it can't happen that way, and I gave examples of things that could not have been produced by reorganizing molecules uh, a little by little. And um, so, that, but there's more to it. And and I also thought that the, the design argument fits the evidence better. Things look designed, that means they probably are designed. Incidentally, Richard Dawkins acknowledges that, probably the most famous atheist in the world. He's an Oxford biologist, wrote quite a few books on atheism. The God Delusion is one of them. Another one having to do with this uh, issue of evolution is the the, uh, Selfish Gene and The Blind Watchmaker. These are all books uh, that advance the Darwinian model as a better explanation for the way things are. And uh, he says, and he opens his Blind Watchmaker book with these words, the biological realm is a complex world that gives the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. Now, he argues there that this is an illusion. It hasn't been designed at all by the watchmaker, but rather by the blind watchmaker of Darwinian evolution, natural selection working on genetic mutations. There are problems with that. I talked about it. But notice that he acknowledges the world looks designed. Well, if it looks designed, maybe it is designed. Why reject that as a possibility Uh, out of hand? Well, I know why, because there are presuppositions that are in play here, because these are people who are atheists, and they, they, they like being atheists. It's, they're happy that God doesn't exist. I'm not making this up. This is what they say. I don't want there to be a God. And, and to a great degree, for those who have expressed this um, 
opinion, it's because they because of their sexual lives, they their sexuality, their sexual lives, their behavior. They don't want God looking into their bedroom, etc., etc. So I'm not making this up. This is what they say. So that was the backdrop for the postscript, which is a question. If creationists are correct that God created, especially Adam and Eve, as such, did Adam have a belly button? Which uh, is an interesting question, not really too substantive, although he does say funny question, um, and to which I would respond, probably not. You know, uh, I don't think that Eve had stretch marks either, <laughs> or whatever. Uh, Adam did have calluses on his hands from working his whole life because he hadn't been working his whole life because he hadn't had a whole life at that point. He just was created as an adult. Incidentally, that's not the appearance of age. Being created as an adult is not the same as the appearance of age. The appearance of age would be evidence that 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 aging had taken place. There is a practical concern about being created as an adult. You can't create them as a zygote, because there's no mom to carry the zygote, Adam and Eve. So they're created as adults. There's a practical consideration there, but I don't think he had calluses on his hands. She didn't have stretch marks. They didn't have wrinkles. There was no uh, you know, hardening of the arteries or anything that goes along, no scars on the body, nothing that goes along or accompanies the notion of aging, because they hadn't aged. Now, a belly button would imply that Adam had been attached with an umbilical cord, which he didn't have. So he wouldn't have had a belly button. That would be my conclusion. Um, I can't give you a chapter and verse on that, but that's, that's my thinking. And nothing rests on whether I'm right or not. Okay. So we got that one. Okay, got the PS, forgot that one in the last hour. Now we've added it. Is there a difference between microevolution and macroevolution? Well, the answer to that is yes and no. And uh, that, let me see if I can think of a, uh, an illustration, a parallel. I can't think of it right offhand. What is microevolution? And what is macroevolution? Microevolution um, are small changes within a resident population that um, confer a reproductive advantage on that population based on some environmental factors. Okay, so let's just say you have these finches in the Galapagos Islands that have small beaks. So the small beak finches, well, those beaks aren't really strong, and they can eat a lot of little little bitty seeds, right? No problem. But big seeds, they can't eat very well. But let's just say the climactic condition, and by the way, there are you're going to have a variation of beak size. You're going to have some 
occasionally you're going to have some goofy bird with a big beak, really strong, and it can break those larger seeds open. But most of them are smaller, okay? And then there's a climactic, a change in climate that results in a change in the seeds. So the plants that had the small seeds that the small-beaked finches could eat, well, those plants aren't doing very well. But the plants that have the big seeds that the big-beaked finches can eat, that's doing well. Now, remember, there are not too many big-beaked finches. But now there's a lot of food for them. And so they eat, and they do really well, and they multiply a lot more big-beaked finches. And the small-beaked finches, they're not doing so well because they can't eat that crunchy stuff, so then there's a smaller population. So you have a variation, actually, in population size that is related to genetic mutation and natural selection. The genes indicating smaller beaks or larger beaks and the natural selection working based on the environmental conditions. So you have an evolutionary thing going on there, but it's a small change. Microevolution. And a finch is still a finch and a beak is still a beak. Okay. What you see going on there are evolutionary adaptations in a very, very small way that do increase the ability of some finches to get their genes into the next generation and pass on this quality that their bodies have that changes the cross-section of the population, at least as far as beaks are concerned, micro-evolution. By the way, this is observable. We can see this in very short period of time. It's not controversial. Then you have macroevolution, where micro means small change, macro means large change. And large change doesn't mean, in this case, that that you have a finch with a small beak that gives birth to an iguana that can eat fish or something or whatever they eat. I guess maybe they eat plants. But that would be, that's not evolution. That's a miracle. <laughs> macroevolution is adding up a bunch of microevolution changes over a long period of time to get a big change from the first instance to the last instance, given a lot of micro changes adding up to the big changes over a massive period of time. Now, that is the difference between the special theory of evolution, microevolution, and the general theory of evolution, macroevolution, also called the molecules-to-man hypothesis, okay? And this is what, by the way, put Darwin on the map. If it had just been microevolution, no big deal. I mean, that's interesting to people who care about that kind of stuff, but it doesn't have any world-shaking uh, significance. But when macroevolution, which is a bunch of micros added up to big change, is, is uh, asserted, then you have the possibility of massive variation in the biological realm without a need for a designer. You have not the watchmaker, but Dawkins's blind watchmaker. Now, this has huge ramifications. So, on the one sense, there is a difference between a microevolution and macroevolution. When you isolate the two, 
time periods of the process. But one would point out, and evolutionists have said this, they're really the same thing. The only thing is the time difference. It's all a bunch of microevolution over a period of time that creates the macroevolution. Now, the real question here is, can, is, is the amount of change possible limitless? All right. Can microevolution add up to the kinds of changes characterized with macroevolution? And I think the answer is no. Look, let's say you're a farmer and you lift a calf. Calf that weighs about 10 pounds or say. I'm just kind of making it up. I don't know how much they weigh. Let's say it makes 10 pounds. Okay. Then that calf. So you're, he's used to carrying that calf at 10 pounds. Okay, then a calf gets a little bigger. It's 12 and 15. Well, he's been carrying the 10, and now he's carrying the 12, and now he's carrying the 15, and he's getting stronger and stronger carrying the, the heavier calf, right? The question is, is there any limit to that? And the answer is yes. He can't keep carrying it until it's a two-ton bull because there are limits to his ability to carry anything. And once he reaches the limit, then the calf cow, whatever it is, keep, bull keeps growing, and did no more carrion. And it appears that's the kind of thing with living things. You can have genetic change within a certain range that can create new characteristics, and sometimes those characteristics allow the individual to reproduce more effectively and get its genes into the next generation. But there are limits. It's not un. Limited, and you get to a certain point where the natural conditions require dramatic change, and change can't happen that fast, and they just die. They can't survive. All right, so that's the question Can microevolution move forward in an unlimited way to create macro impact in the biological, in the biosphere? All right, and that's quantifiable. I think the answer is no. What drives this is not the science. What drives it is the philosophy of materialism, which says, well, there's problems, but this is the only thing we got going, materialistically. What about God? Up. They cry foul. Can't do that. Why not? Because that isn't how it works. All right, so the question is, do you want the right answers or the right kind of answers? And the answer is, they want the right kind of answers, answers that comport with metaphysical naturalism, materialism. And uh, if the evidence goes against that, well, then you disqualify the evidence, okay? So there's a, let's see, I think there's a, here's another question. That's the difference between microevolution and macro. Is there? And I said, yes and no. Qualified. How can you reasonably conclude something was designed? Okay, now, uh, this isn't hard. I'm pausing because I'm trying to think of the best way to say it, but this isn't hard, okay? Um, There are lots of things that we see that we know are designed, and we don't even debate it. Well, how did we conclude that it was designed? Because design presents itself in a certain way, such that we have, for lack of a better word, an intuition, a design intuition. Doug Axe is the one that I owe this phrase to, 
wrote a book called Undeniable. There is a design intuition that the nature of the thing, it is clear, and here's how he puts it, that it takes know-how to do that thing. And even kids can see it. Okay, so if, if, for example, I think this is his illustration. So let's say you take, you tell your kids, look, at, we've got alphabet soup, okay? And we're going to put the alphabet soup, we're going to put the alphabet, uh, whatever you call them, like um, pasta things, into the soup. We're going to stir it and boil it, okay? And then when we're done, when we take the lid off of it, we're going to see instructions on the top of this the, the soup with the alphabet on how to make a toy and then we're going to make that toy okay and they're going to listen to you and listen to you and listen to you and then finally when they realize what it is you're claiming they're going to go nah that's not going to happen and of course they know that because they have a design intuition that anything looks that looks designed probably was designed, and no natural process is going to produce something of complexity that looks designed. That's the design intuition. How can we argue something is designed? You look at it. Here I've got a piece of paper here with words on it. Okay, the words correspond. These markings correspond to markings that fit the English language, and the combination of the English language markings form a co coherent sentence that makes sense to me. So it's not only complex or specified, it's not only complex, it is specified in a certain way. There's a complexity here to these letters that's specified to the English language in words and sentences relating to my discipline. Questions from you guys? Because I see the specified complexity that is obviously not an accident, I am within my rights to claim, assert, uh, conclude is the better word. It's not assert. I'm not just asserting it. I'm concluding that this was designed by someone intelligent. And here I'm reading the questions off the page. So the simple way to answering how can we reasonably conclude something was designed by, by observing it and seeing the nature of it and asking, does it have evidence of intelligence in its making? Does it take know-how to accomplish this. By the way, archaeologists know this all the time. There's all kinds of pieces of flint laying around, but when they come to a place where the pieces of flint bear certain characteristics, like they have been struck in a certain shape from a certain angle to create an artifact that serves a purpose, they are justified in concluding it was designed. Now, what could be more simple than a piece of rock with some chips off of it? Yet they conclude that was designed for a purpose, and then they look at the living cell and they say, no, that was an accident. That came around by naturalistic processes. Look, at you wouldn't even dismiss a shoe print in the sand 
a basically a two-dimensional shoe print in the sand based on natural processes and chance. Because first of all, it is wildly unlikely that any natural process would produce that particular form, this precise shoe print that even says vibrum across the bottom of it in reverse, right? So that wouldn't be likely. And secondly, there's a better explanation. What's the better explanation? Someone wearing a shoe walked across the sand. No, duh. Well, we have the same kind of thing in spades in everything virtually pertaining to the biological realm. Not only are the individual particulars wildly, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, improbable, there's a better explanation. An intelligent mind designed these things. The DNA double helix for nucleotides that spell all kinds of different things to build proteins that make little engines that do work in your cell. They're engines. They're little things driving around in your cells, billions of them, doing all the work. Where did the blueprint come from? Who designed the engines to do the work that they're doing to keep you alive? That is not going to happen by accident. Oh, prove that to me. Really? I'm just going to say here, the burden of proof is not on me. The burden of proof is not on me as I look at this piece of paper that I talked about to demonstrate, to prove to you that this was designed. It is obviously designed, and if you think differently, it's your job to show me how this happened by accident. How this happened. Not how some things could look like words and happen by how this right here. And by the way, that's true of the entire biological realm. To, To just wave the wand, okay, we got Finch's beak that evolved that helped things survive. We've got microevolution that proves evolution. Everything evolved, and so we wave the wand over everything. Now, you got to do better than that. Any individual particular bit of novelty, if you're going to be honest, you're going to have to show how did that unusual thing evolve by chance. And if you can't show it, then I'm not justified in believing you. I'm rather justified saying that looks like it's designed. It takes know-how to accomplish. And I'm within my rights to hold my ground in that regard. All right, let's take a break, and then we'll get to calls on Stand to Reason. Did you know Stand to Reason has a YouTube channel? We release a new video each Monday on the topics you care about. Through short, engaging videos, our speakers train you on tactics, offer apologetics tips, answer common theology questions, and address big issues in the world today. Join tens of thousands of other subscribers so you can stay up to date when we release a new video. Just go to youtube.com and search STR videos, all one word, and hit the subscribe button. That's STR videos. Take advantage of this free resource to help you stay informed, encouraged, and equipped as you share your worldview with others. Do you want to become a more knowledgeable Christian ambassador without sitting through a formal course on apologetics? 
Well, we've made that possible for you through our STR Quick Reference app. Available for free on iTunes and Google Play, the STR Quick Reference app holds a wealth of information summarizing what you need to know on a range of topics. Learn how to defend the faith, see how other worldviews compare to Christianity, and master the biblical view of morality all through short, engaging videos. Before you know it, you'll be well-versed on a number of important apologetics topics. In addition, the Quick Reference app also includes a Bible with text and audio, as well as some featured STR resources, all to enhance your learning experience. The STR Quick Reference app will equip you to engage in thoughtful conversation about the key issues of life from a classical Christian perspective. Visit iTunes or the Google Play Store today and download the STR Quick Reference app. And if you enjoy the app, make sure you give it a five-star review. Back at you here. Let's go to Ken in Lake Hills, Texas. Ken, welcome to the show. Hello, Ken. Hi, how are you? Okay, buddy. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Where is Lake Hills in Texas? It is uh, west of San Antonio. Oh, okay. All righty. Glad to have you on board. What's in your mind? Well, I'd just like to have your understanding, know your understanding of the biblical doctrine of predestination in a nutshell. Okay. Um, well, predestined means to destine something to happen before it happens. I mean, if you just look at the particular parts of the word, that's what predestined means. It's to determine something is going to take place before it takes place. Now it depends on what it is that the word predestined is being applied to in the Bible, because it is in the Bible. I'm looking at Romans 8 right now, 28, 29, 30. Uh, actually, it appears there a number of times. So um, a lot depends on how the word is applied in the text. So are you okay with that definition of predestination, the one I just offered? As a yes. as a starting point, okay. Now, here's what I'm looking at. I'm just for example, we have to take individual texts in order to, um, in order to see what it means in the context. Okay. Verse twenty eight, famous passage in Romans. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. All right. Now there's more, but I just want you to notice that this is a function of knowledge. That is something we can be confident of, we can be certain of, and that God is acting in a certain way to accomplish an end. God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, to uh, to those who are called according to His purpose. So notice that God is the active agent here. He's causing something to happen to a group of people, those who love Him, and that group of people have been called to a purpose. Okay? Okay, so then it keeps going, and this is important. We have to keep reading instead of just citing the passage, because it does indicate what that purpose is. For those whom he foreknew, 
that he knew beforehand is the point. Those who he knew beforehand, how could he know them beforehand? Okay, we can get to that in a minute. He also predestined, there's our word, to become conformed to the image of his Son. Okay, that's the goal. So what he predestined those whom he foreknew, in this case, to is to be like Jesus. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Next verse. And those whom he predestined, that he predetermined something would happen, that would be that they would be like Jesus. He also called. Oh, wait a minute, that called is in the verse up above. He said, called according to his purpose. So the calling is based on his predestination regarding them to be conformed to Christ. Are you following me so far? Yes. Okay, good. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So in this passage, it seems what God is predestining is that the ones that he knew beforehand, in some sense, he called and destined beforehand to make them like his Son, which is the glorification that is talked about in verse 30, and there's a sequence of events that take place. Justification, uh, they're called, they're justified, and they're glorified. So there is one biblical characterization of what is in view with God predestining. Does that make sense to you? Yes, it does, but I, I think there's a contradiction that I'm having problems with. Okay, what would be the contradiction? You mean in this passage? Well, no, not in the passage, but overall. Maybe I'm interrupting you. No, no, that's uh, all right. No, I, I, I basically laid out what the passage means, and okay. it seems, would you say, before we go further, that this passage seems to speak in a fairly straightforward way? Yes, it does. Okay, good. And the concern, you mentioned contradiction, maybe it's just a concern, we'll see, is what? Well, if predestination is the biblical doctrine that God, in his sovereignty, chooses certain individuals to be saved, then that appears to contradict First uh, Timothy 2.4, which basically said God's desire is that all would be saved, and come to repentance. So if his desire is for all to be saved, then in his sovereignty, he could um, he could choose others to be saved as long as they made the made that choice for him. Does that make sense? No, I understand the the concern entirely. So let's just say, okay, I'm with you on the first Timothy passage. So what we have is a contradiction. Now right, what? I think so. Now what? How do I reconcile that? All right, so that's a good question, because what we want to do is try to reconcile it, okay? Mm-hmm. We want to try to reconcile it. Now, I, when I went through this passage in Romans, um, I, I went through quite a number of verses, and which, I mean, they're all connected together, obviously, and um, we parsed it out in a very careful way, and then I asked you, is this clear? And your answer was yes, and I think it is fair that it is clear, okay? So now we have another passage 
that a sentence that seems to contradict. Okay, now we have to make a decision. Which which apparent meaning has the most force to it, and which apparent meaning is the most flexible? If we're trying to reconcile the two, okay, then then have we apparent have we misread the Romans eight passage? Is there a different way that we could read Romans eight that would make it sound like he did not predestine anything to happen? at all, but he leaves it up to the individuals to decide. Do you think there's any room there for that? No, I don't think so. I don't think so either. I don't think so either. So, maybe the difficulty is is an assumption we're making about the Timothy passage, that he desires all men to be saved. Okay, so let me—it seems like there are—if this is a fair way to put it, there are two desires that are conflicting here. There is a sovereign desire God has to save some, Romans 8, he, and he does that by predestining in the series that we described. And, in another sense, he, does a, he also desires to save all. So God desires to save some, God desires to save all. That would be the contradiction, right? Yes, absolutely. The apparent contradiction. Okay, so now the question is, is it possible for God to desire something in more than one way? Okay. Okay, so a contradiction is, strictly speaking, is A cannot be not A at the same time and in the same way. <clears throat> okay, so, um, and I've used this illustration before, if we said that um, Napoleon was a small man and he was not a small man, that would appear to be a contradiction. But if we meant that he was small in stature, but he was not small in influence, then that wouldn't be a contradiction, correct? Correct. Okay, so that if it turns out that the senses of God wanting are not the same in each case, then there wouldn't be a contradiction. Uh, I, I agree with you, by the way, that the Romans passage seems very, very straightforward. And if we are going to say that what God ultimately desires with regards to salvation is that all people be saved, and we don't qualify it at all, then what we have to do is we got to find some different way to read Romans 8, or else we've got a contradiction. And it seems really hard <laughs> to unravel Romans 8 in any other way than what it obviously seems to say, because we've got about six verses there that is hammering away at the same concept, okay? Right, so right. Uh, I want to draw your attention to First uh, uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, and here's, here's what it says, And this is God's will, even your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So God wills that people abstain from sexual immorality. Okay. Now, can people, uh, can people, uh, let's see, violate that will? Uh, Violate God's will, yes. Yes, of course. They can disobey. So there is a sense of God's will 
that can be disobeyed, and there is a sense of God's will. Well, like Daniel says, he does all things according to his will on heaven and on the earth, okay? Or uh, James will say, uh, if God will will it, I will go to this city or that city, okay? So there's a sense in which the will of God can be spoken of in an inviolable, sovereign sense, and the will of God can also be in a violable, in other words, it can be violated, sense of, of sinning. That's the First Thessalonians 4 passage, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, when we read Romans 8, does this give the impression that this is just something that might happen, or is this something that God, by His sovereign purposes, is securing? The predestination passage I read. The latter. I agree. I think it's hard to read it any other way. But when we read in First Timothy, it says, God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. Is that how it put it? For there's one save, there's one one God and one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. Do you think, is is that, is that something where God is expressing his sovereign will? He sovereignly desires all men to be saved. Or is it just maybe reflecting his moral will, a will that he has that could be violated? His moral will. I agree, and I'll tell you why. Because if it was his sovereign will that all men be saved, guess what? All men would be saved. All people would be saved. Here it says that all aren't saved, only those whom he foreknew and called for the purpose of ultimately glorifying them, and he is responsible for that being done. That's what it means when he says he predestined it. In the First Timothy passage, he's expressing something he wants, but men could could uh, could disregard it, can violate it, just like sexual immorality. So I think the answer, the way to resolve the apparent contradiction, is to say that the notion of God's will in each case is different, just like Napoleon being small in stature but not small in influence. The Romans 8 passage is talking about God's sovereign will that he will guarantee to accomplish. That's the predestination part. But in the First Timothy passage, it's talking about God's desires that can be violated and thwarted, or else everyone would be saved, which we know they're not. So it must be his moral will that's in view there. So so uh, there is no contradiction, then, when we see the concepts being used differently. Here's the way I'd combine them. God morally desires everyone to turn to Him, but in His sovereign sense, He is going to rescue some that He guarantees are going to be a bride—well, it doesn't talk about the bride for Christ here, but that's what it amounts to. We'll just say, He will guarantee will be made like Christ eventually because he is going to guarantee that. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, so understood in that sense, there's no conflict, and that's what we're after. There, one way of looking at this, treating Romans as the sovereign will, and 1 Timothy as his moral will, removes the contradiction, 
and also maintains the integrity, that moves the apparent contradiction, and maintains the integrity of the passages. But if you did it the other way, you tried to have the, de- de- the defining passage be the First Timothy passage, well, I don't know what you're going to do with the Romans passage without doing radical violence to it. Yeah. In a situation like this, and this is the way I approach these, uh, Ken, as I try to find the solution that makes the best sense of both passages together without doing severe violence to either one or doing the least amount of apparent violence. And the the solution I offered you, I think, accomplishes that really well. It does no violence. It does no violence to the Romans passage. It does no violence to the Timothy passage. Okay, may I ask a follow-up? Sure. So how does the Great Commission uh, fit into this? If God foreknows, he's chosen those who will be saved, then what's the point of going out? To all the world. Okay, the the Great Commission. Do you remember exactly how it's worded? Um, no, I have to look it up. Okay, well, Matthew it says, "Go unto all the world and make disciples, baptizing, right. teaching, etc. Uh, all that I've commanded you." Okay, so the Great Commission is a disciple-making commission. So there's no contradiction between the Great Commission and God's sovereign act of predestining some people to salvation. Those that are predestined to salvation, we are to make disciples out of them, so there's no conflict. But I think the question maybe could be put, then what is the point of evangelizing? And that's probably what you're getting at. Yes. Okay, so here's a very important procedural point. All right, and a lot of people don't see this or they don't adhere to it. Okay. We have to let the passage that teaches here in Romans what it teaches be the main guide. It does okay. raise other questions. But what we can't do and, and I'm not saying you're doing this, but boy, have I seen a lot of people do this. They say, "Well, then what's the value, what's the point of evangelism, if that's true? Therefore, that verse doesn't mean that. Well, wait a minute, the verse does mean that. We just went through it step by step by step by step. And because because we have a concern that is a legitimate concern, and a question that maybe we can't answer. I think we can, but maybe, let's say we can't. It doesn't change the force of Romans 8, or any of the other passages. And I have seen this time and time again. It really frustrates me, Ken, the what about, what about, what about, what about, what about. And if I can't answer all the whatabouts, then the people who raise the whatabout, and again, I'm not saying you're doing this, but the people who raise the whatabout feel completely justified in ignoring the passage. Wait a minute. You have to start with the teaching of the text. Once the teaching of the text is in place and reasonably justified by the text, then we have to then we ask the whatabouts we say well how does this fit in and the answer is that even though there is a sovereign purpose of god that he has established and will accomplish there are still actions we must take for that purpose to be fulfilled okay and i'll give you i can give you a bunch of examples 
okay? So was the predestined plan of God to have Jesus go to the cross and pray for the sin, and to pay for the sins of the world? Yes. Yes, absolutely. However, when when Jesus was an infant and uh King Herod was going to try to kill him, what did the angel tell Joseph to do? To take the child to Egypt. To go to Egypt. Why? To protect the child. Wait a minute. He can't hurt the child. The child is predestined by God to go to the cross 33 years later. You know, let the soldiers come in and take every whack they want. They can't hurt the child. God has predestined him. Of course, that wasn't the way God worked. God said, take the child. So there is this close interplay between the, these, all of these means and things that we do, even though there's a, pl- there's a plan of God that God has given himself to accomplish. And in the text, there's not the slightest bit of contradiction hinted at in that passage. Uh, Jesus also, there were people who picked up stones to stone him in his ministry, and he just passed through. He just disappeared or went somewhere. They didn't do it. Why? Because his time time wasn't—why he, 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 don't you go up to Jerusalem? No, it was dangerous to go to Jerusalem. So I'm going to stay here in Galilee, and then I'm going to go up in my own good time. Okay, why didn't he just say, hey, I'm going up. Nobody can hurt me. It's not my time yet. No, the, all of these things are involved. And I, I've actually collected a whole bunch of circumstances in the Bible where these things are the case. Um, in the Old Testament, is filled with them. So you have battles. I'm in Second uh, Chronicles right now. <clears throat> so, okay, the Lord's going to give these into your hand. Go up and form an ambush. <laughs> Wait a minute, why do I need to form an ambush? Aren't you going to kill these guys? You're going to give them into my hand. Why do I have to form an ambush? Because that's the means God ordained to accomplish the end he also ordained. And again, all through the Bible we see these things, okay? And that's the mystery between the human action that God has ordained to accomplish the sovereign ends that God has also ordained. Okay. So when it comes it. to evangelism, we do evangelism because that's part of the process. Okay. All right? I'm good with that. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to hear that. Thank you, Ken. All right. You have a great day. Okay. You too, buddy. I appreciate the call. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. All right. So there you go. That's great. Ken was really a great call, and I'm glad I got to do this, partly because I care about this issue, not just the theological thing, but the method—pardon me, I'm sorry—the methodology of it. I haven't eaten yet today, so <laughs> Amy's laughing at me. Are you laughing at me? No, you're laughing at the—what, did Kyle just burp, too? Yeah, he did it, but he didn't do it on the air. I'm the one who sounds like an idiot. All right, so, because it's not just the theological thing that concerns me, it's the methodology. And and I have confronted this, encountered this, not confronted, encountered it so much. The, the, this, the, the what about, what about, what about? Well, what about this? Well, what about that? Well, what about evangelism and of sovereignty of God? What about, you know, and, and what about God desires all to be saved? Okay, well, look at, there's two passages. One's in First Timothy, the other one's in Second Peter. And actually, in Second Peter, I think something else is going on there. Uh, but Because I, I think he's talking about the church. He's waiting for the church to come in. You know, and God is not slow about his, his promise, but he is long-suffering, not wishing that any should perish, but all that come to, 
repentance. By the way, something's missing there. Not per, not not w w willing that any what? There's an object missing. Any what perish, and all what come to repentance. Well, when you look at the 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 entire chapter, the chapter, the whole book, the whole book is being addressed to believers. And he's not just saying any human being, although that's what we often will subconsciously put, but all human beings we subconsciously put there. But he's talking about any of the ones he's talking to, members of the church. And and so, by the way, it, it, it must be that, too, or else you have a, a ridiculous circumstance. Peter is talking about the claim that the second coming is has tarried. Where is he? You said he's coming. He hasn't come yet, so he's never going to come. And then Peter says, God is not slow according to his promise, as some count slowness, but long-suffering, not wishing that any something should perish, but all something should come to repentance. If he means not wishing, willing that any human would perish, but all humans would come to repentance, Jesus will never return. If he's waiting for everyone to become Christian, he's never going to return because everyone's not going to become Christian. It must be a limited group. He's waiting for some group to all come in to the fold, and then he'll return. He's waiting on those members that are chosen for the church but haven't come into the church yet, because the entire book he's talking to the church. He's talking to believers, all you. Every single reference is to those people. I charted every proverb, a proverb pronoun in there. But in any event, so that to me is a little different case. There he's talking about believers and the bride of Christ coming in in Second Peter, but it's not so obvious in First Timothy wishing all to come in. Well, he does want all. He doesn't want anybody to sin. He wants all to be forgiven after a fashion, in a sense. But if that means in the ultimate sense, in his sovereign sense, then his sovereign purposes will be accomplished, and everyone will become a Christian, and universalism will be the fact of the matter. But we know that's not the case. We got Revelation 20, lots of people don't make it. And there's no second chance. It's ordained for man to die once and then come the judgment. So now what? So it can't mean that. It must be making a reference to God's desires, God's will, if you will, that is in a different category than God's desires of a sovereign sort. So God has desires that cannot be thwarted, and God has desires that can be thwarted. The first would be, we could call that his sovereign purposes. The second, we can call that his, his moral designs. The Ten Commandments are the will of God for us to obey, but we can thwart that. 
It's our job to fulfill his moral will. And guess what? We don't. I mentioned First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, and this is the will of God, even your sanctification, i.e., for example, part of your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And God is the judge. I mean, I don't have it right in front of me. I'm just going kind of from memory because I've gone over that passage so many times. Go everywhere, preach Christ, Galatians, Ephesians. Philippians, Colossians, then it's the first and second Thessalonians. So first Thessalonians chapter four. <clears throat> not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in this manner, because the Lord is the avenger and all these things. Just as we also told you before, and solemnly warned you. By the way, I actually haven't read this whole passage in quite a while. This is a solemn warning. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, Do not be deceived. For no one who does the following things, and there's three sexual things there, including fornication and, I think, adultery and homosexuality. You're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. You're living like this. You're living like hell. You're probably going to go there. That's kind of what he's saying. And strong here in First Thess 4, don't live a sinful, sexually sinful life. God's watching. But guess what? People do live a sexually sinful life. It says it's God's will. This is what God wants. But this is a kind of wanting by God that can be disobeyed. Because the fulfillment of this desire of God is not up to God. It's up to us that's on us. But there are other things that are the design of God that are not up to us. They are up to God. Got a great example of that. Uh, And this has to do with the word foreknowledge, and I just got a couple minutes here, but I don't want you to miss this, because the word foreknowledge came up in the Romans 8 passage, too. Those whom he foreknew, That is not omniscience. God is not knowing that we're going to decide something. It doesn't say those whose decisions he knew beforehand. He knew the people beforehand. Therefore, foreknowledge, in the sense it's used there, is a synonym for election. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. I elected, and so therefore I established this end to be accomplished. And I established that beforehand. And here in First Peter, according to those who are uh, who are chosen, verse one, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. How do you get sprinkled with His blood? By believing in Him. So they're choosing according to the foreknowledge, not omniscience, but foreknowledge of God, to be sprinkled with his blood by believing in him. That's the only way you get sprinkled with his blood. I'm adding that, but that's built in. Okay, now, wait a minute, you're playing games with foreknowledge there. No, I'm not. Look across the page. Same chapter. Verse 19 and 20. He talks about that we are redeemed by with the precious blood of a lamb, unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. 
for he, watch this, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. But now he's appeared in these last times for the sake of you. So Jesus was foreknown, and the plan of him, does that mean that God just knew that Jesus was going to die? No, God planned it. It was a plan he put in place. So foreknowledge here is not omniscience. It isn't knowing in advance. It's a synonym for God's sovereign plan. According to the foreknowledge of God, we were chosen, verse 1 and 2, according to the foreknowledge of God, Jesus was chosen to sacrifice himself. That is God's plan, his sovereign purposes in both cases, that he fulfills, not us. Moral will, we fulfill. Sovereign will, he fulfills. Predestination, foreknowledge, chosenness, all part of solid, so, sovereign will. There it is in the text. It strikes me as pretty straightforward. Okay, that's good for now. Something to think about. Greg Kokel here at Stand a Reason for Stand a Reason. Give them heaven. Bye-bye, friends.